This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 97, May the 8th, 1985. I'd like to begin with a subject that uh, I think should be of interest to all of us. I think all of you are familiar with my uh, position with regard to the dietary laws of Scripture, that I take them seriously. Of late, there have been people who have attacked the whole idea of abiding by the dietary laws, although a very large number of people across country do take them very seriously. These attacks have been rather absurd because uh, they've involved going so far as to say that it is denying one's salvation by the grace of God to practice the dietary laws and to affirm that one must, to show they are recipients of grace, violate these laws. Well, I was uh, reading this week in a book I picked up on Monday, the book of Leviticus by S.H. Kellogg, published in 1899 and reprinted by Clock and Clock Christian Publishers. Samuel Henry Kellogg was an American Presbyterian scholar and missionary, and this was in particular his outstanding work. In the course of this uh, study, Dr. Kellogg gave more than a little space to the uh, dietary laws, arguing in their favor. And he points out that uh, the observance of the dietary laws gave the Hebrews and the Jews through the medieval era a marked superiority. He writes, and I quote, Even so long ago, as the days when the plague was desolating Europe, the Jews so universally escaped infection that by this their exemption the popular suspicion was excited into fury, and they were accused of causing the fearful mortality among their Gentile neighbors by poisoning the wells and springs. In our own day, in the recent cholera epidemic in Italy, a correspondent of the Jewish Chronicle testifies that the Jews enjoyed almost absolute immunity, at least from fatal attack. Then uh, Dr. Kellogg went on to give a number of other illustrations. Uh, the life expectancy in the 1890s, by the way, was low because the mortality rate among children was very high because of uh, childhood diseases and infections which have since been eliminated, plus also the dramatic reduction of uh, death in childbirth. Dr. Kellogg writes, and I quote, In Prussia, the mean duration of Jewish life averages five years more than that of the general population. In Firth, the average duration of Jewish life is 37 and of Christians, 26 years. In Hungary, an exhaustive study of the facts 
shows that the average duration of life with the Croats is 20.2, of the Germans 20.7, but of the Jews 46.5 years, and that although the latter, the Jews, generally are poor and live under much more unfavorable sanitary conditions than their Gentile neighbors. In the light of such well-certified facts, the conclusion seems certainly to be warranted that at least one chief consideration which in the divine wisdom determined the allowance or prohibition as the food of Israel of the animals named in this chapter has been their fitness or unfitness as diet from a hygienic point of view, especially regarding their greater or less liability to have, and to communicate to man infectious parasitic diseases." Unquote. Another point made by some scholars of the last century was that what God gave to people when he called attention to the dietary laws was their choice between life and death. Life for obedience, death in due time for disobedience, for a violation of the God-given requirements for their hell. There's more to uh, what um, Kellogg has to say. Let me quote just a little more. No less needful is the lesson of this law to many who are at the opposite extreme. For as there are those who are so taken up with the soul and its health that they ignore its relation to the body, and the bearing of bodily conditions upon character. So there are others who are so preoccupied with questions of bodily health, sanitation and hygiene regarded merely as prudent measures from an earthly point of view, that they forget that man has a soul as well as a body, and that such questions of sanitation and hygiene only find their proper place when it is recognized that health and perfection of the body are not to be sought merely that man may become a more perfect animal, but in order that thus with a sound mind and a sound body he may the more perfectly serve the Lord in the life of holiness to which we are called. Thus it appears that this forgotten law of the clean and the unclean in food, so far from being at the best puerile, and for us now certainly quite useless, still teaches us the very important lesson that a due regard to wholeness and health of body is essential to the right and symmetrical development of holiness of character. In every dispensation the law of God combines the bodily and the spiritual in a sacred synthesis. If in the New Testament we are directed to glorify God in our spirits, we are no less explicitly commanded, 1 Corinthians 6.20, to glorify God in our bodies, and thus is given to the laws of health the higher sanction of the divine obligation of the moral law, as summed up in the closing words of this chapter, Be holy, for I am holy. Unquote. Well, the dietary laws of Scripture have had a long and complicated history. Uh, 
the antipathy that developed in some circles in the early church to them, and then subsequently after the fall of Rome, was to a considerable measure motivated by an anti-Jewish feeling rather than a concern for what Scripture teaches, so that unworthy motives have gone into the rejection of a portion of Scripture. Now to another subject. In the magazine Wealth, spring 1985, there are some items about inflation. The world's highest inflation rate today is in Bolivia at 116% per year. Now, one would think this was the worst in the world, while it is percentage-wise the highest, the world's worst-run economy, according to Wealth, and I quote, no, it's not in Latin America, it's Israel, with 1,260% inflation, a national budget larger than its gross national product, a government monopoly on every major commercial activity, and a welfare system that gives nearly every citizen one or more guaranteed benefits. Their solutions, instituted last November, included knocking out two zeros off their currency and a wage and price freeze, in which violators face up to three years in prison and fines of $3,500. They owe the United States more than $10 billion, not counting tens of billions of dollars we sent them in gifts." Unquote. Now that's a very interesting fact and a very tragic one. We have, as besides American gifts and subsidies, German reparations which are continuing to Israel. Why is the situation in Israel so very bad? Why are they, with the kind of leadership they ostensibly have, the world's worst-run economy? It's a very important question to consider, and uh, one we should think about because it has some relationship to us. I think the key is this. Israel is a modern state that is formed since World War II, and it began with a great many intellectuals in leadership intellectuals from Western Europe and this country and Eastern Europe as well. The cruelest people, as Otto Scott and others have pointed out, that have ever existed are the intellectuals as a class. They are ready to destroy peoples to satisfy their desire to work out their theories. Israel has had too many intellectuals. These intellectuals have worked out a state to suit their humanistic presuppositions. And it's not surprising that they are being helped by us because our leadership 
being humanistic, is ready to help further any humanistic world dream. Now briefly to still another subject. A book that is not at all worth reading and uh, is thoroughly worthless is Michael Perkins' The Secret Record, Modern Erotic Literature, published in 1977. I cite this book because something I uh, pointed out some few years ago, must be about ten years ago now, or more, more than ten years ago, in my book, The Politics of Pornography, now out of print, was that modern pornography differs from pre-World War II pornography. In the past, pornographic works were dirty books by intention and by character. They were under-the-counter books, secretly sold and secretly read. Since World War II, the new pornography, as I pointed out in that book, sees itself as the true health of man, as a cleansing, purifying thing, as an agent in the destruction of Christianity, the disease of man. Perkins has a chapter, a long one, really the heart of his book, entitled the innocence of evil. What evil or pornography does in the perspective of Perkins and others is to remove the corruption of Christianity and allow man to enjoy life with the purity of evil undiluted by a bad conscience. And of course, he gives all kinds of uh, illustrations of this, extremely blasphemous ones over which he rhapsodizes. One is by a highly praised writer who wrote a book in which the title character is a prostitute who is also presented as the embodiment of God. Now to still another book, which uh, one or two of you requested, in particular Steve Primo. Uh, my comments or my reaction to the book by Robert, Robert H. Schuler and Paul David Dunn, The Power of Being Debt-Free. It's an excellent title, but a terrible book, because... All that uh, the authors are interested in is a debt-free federal government. They call attention to the fact that the American government owes $1.83 trillion, that 14% of the federal budget is allocated to pay the national debt's interest and some estimates project a national debt of $13 trillion by the year 2000. I would say that's a very conservative estimate because it does not take into condition, 
into consideration the underground uh, government that we have and the off-budget items that, that are not considered in the deficit and which would multiply the deficit considerably. Let me add parenthetically, when I was in Washington, D.C. last week, I was told that by 1990, the interest on the national debt will equal the gross national product. Well, what's wrong with this book then? The dedication shows no dislike of debt. It is, the book is dedicated to our unborn children and grandchildren with the hope that someday they will be able to secure a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage on their home at 7%. In other words, what the authors want is more debt. That is, the possibility for more debt by the private citizens at a fixed mortgage rate. Not a debt-free people. They want to enable people to go into debt more freely and readily. One scripture tells us that the debt limit should be six years, the seventh to be a sabbatical to our God. What Scripture is telling us is that here is a way of having an inflation-free society. If people and states and businesses cannot go into long-term debt, you cannot have inflation. You will have a stable society and a strong one. You can have a sabbatical year because then the amount now paid out in high interest rates would go only into savings and enable men to be free the seventh year to rejoice in the Lord. I can remember when interest rates were only about 2%. The book is full, of course, of possibility thinking. And... Uh, The possibility thinking, as defined here, is clearly Hegelian, so that we can uh, say this is hardly a Christian book in its perspective. I definitely do not recommend it. The same goes for another book on money by Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L, -L -L, Money and Power, published recently by InterVarsity Press. Jacques Ellul is a retired professor uh, in France, a Frenchman, who has a marked hostility to technology, to everything in the modern world. He somehow feels we will all be good if we can eliminate this world of uh, wealth, of technology, and so on. One of the things that is interesting is that uh, 
while he is critical of Marxism, he can also speak of Marxism's or communism's good points. He wants to make money profane, which is ridiculous. Profane means literally outside the temple. Money can be godly when it serves the kingdom of God, when it serves the needs and proper uses of the family. But somehow, while Marx is, uh, uh, Marxism is good because it speaks about poverty, And Elul recognizes that uh, poverty is not entirely good. At the same time, he doesn't seem to want to have a world of the middle class or of the wealthy or anyone. He is a very confused writer, very influential in neo-orthodox circles, of which he is a representative he is, he writes with characteristic imp precision, but he has been very influential in evangelical circles, unfortunately. He's a writer best forgotten. Now to turn to something radically different. One of the late medieval mystics was Meister Eckhart. His thinking is uh, definitely heretical. He is at times very close to Paul Tillich in his unwillingness to uh, ascribe either being or non-being to God. But at points, he did have some things to say that... Uh, were rather uh, good. Let me read this from uh, this particular translation. I quote, Asceticism is of no great importance. There is a better way to treat one's passions than to pile on oneself ascetic practices which so often reveal a great ego and create more instead of less self-consciousness. If you wish to discipline the flesh and make it a thousand times more subject, then place on it the bridle of love. Whoever has accepted this sweet burden of the bridle of love will attain more and come much further than all the penitential practices and mortifications that all the people in the world acting together could ever carry out. Whoever has found this way needs no other. It is when people are not aware of God's presence everywhere that they must seek God by special methods and special practices. Such people have not attained to God. To all outward appearances, persons who continue properly in their pious practices are holy. Inwardly, however, they are asses. For they know about God, but they do not know 
God. Uh, I should add, by the way, that I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, that uh, Eckhart was a Franciscan. Then, this too, I think, is very good. Again, quoting from Eckhart, Some people, I swear, want to love God in the same way as they love a cow. They love it for its milk and cheese and the profit they will derive from it. Those who love God for the sake of outward riches or for the sake of inward consolation operate on the same principle. They are not loving God correctly. They are merely loving their own advantage. Unquote. Then this, too, I think is good. A person works in a stable. That person has a breakthrough. What does he do? He returns to work in the stable. <laughs> Very good. Then to another book. James Brough, B-R-O-U-G-H, The Woolworths, published in 1982, but now, I believe, out of print. An interesting work because it gives us a very telling account of the founder of the Woolworth Empire. Woolworth was a strange man. He had a passion for work and for the accumulation of wealth. He was not the kind of rich man we imagine from caricatures. He was very thrifty. When he was first beginning establishing chain stores, Woolworth, with a relative who worked for him, went to a city where they planned to open a new store, stayed in a very cheap hotel, slept in a double bed together, then went to the local YMCA to shower before they went to the store to open up the new uh, branch of the Woolworth Empire. This is the kind of economy he practiced. Later in life, he began to spend some money to make a social splash, which he never did. And in order to reward his wife, who wanted none of it. But uh, the man worked out of the sheer love of work. There was a dedication and a single-minded devotion to carrying on the business. He would uh, visit stores and uh, write a report for the manager when he'd slipped in and out with no one spotting him on all kinds of little details. That this 25-cent item should be placed behind the 10-cent item that the candy girl's apron had some spots on it, and that should not happen again, and so on and so forth. 
when the chain extended not only across the United States and Canada, but abroad, he realized that the work was getting too big for one man to handle. And so he decided to set up a corporation, all kinds of officials, in order to um, spread the work around. But even after he did that, he would work from early morning till late at night superintending everything. He decided to build the Woolworth Building in New York, for some time the world's greatest building, and quite a spectacular event in his day. It was one of the ways he had of uh, using his wealth, although even as he did, he knew it was going to pay off. He drove uh, the architect and the contra contractors crazy because every little step he had to approve of and superintend. And it was not that he doubted the abilities of these people. It was his delight in work. There's a great deal in his life that uh, is sad and very wrong, too. Because with his self-denial in terms of his work, he sacrificed his wife and children and grandchildren. His family meant nothing to him as compared to his work. He was considerate of his work. He worked out something we are rarely told about, a profit-sharing plan for his employees. He did cut all his workers in on Woolworth profits. But... He left devastation in his wake as far as his family life was concerned. One of his grandchildren, a prominent playboy internationally, was a homosexual, and I believe he committed suicide. And of course, one of the saddest characters was Barbara Woolworth Hutton. who came into 35 million when she was 11, and at 21, 40 million more, and then more income as well, and blundered into and out of seven bad marriages, three princes, one count, a baron, an international playboy, and a movie star, and finally dieted herself to death in her penthouse at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. It is a very interesting account, a good uh, sidelight on uh, the economics that prevailed from the Civil War to the Depression. Now on to another book, Christopher Hill, The Experience of Defeat.
Milton and Some Contemporaries, published in 1984 by uh, Viking Books. This is an interesting account of the um, reaction of various peoples, Puritans and non-Puritans, all who hoped for a change in England when Charles II returned to the throne. There's a great deal of interest in it as far as curious sidelights on the times are concerned. We think of the Quakers as uh, peace-loving pacifists, but uh, the Quakers came on to that after defeat. Earlier they could be uh, very bloodthirsty, and uh, one uh, Quaker leader said it would never be well until some of the Presbyterian clergy had been executed. <laughs> and uh, there are a great many things about the Quakers, including the James Naylor episode, which are recounted here in some detail. James Naylor, by the way, is a very interesting figure, perhaps the great leader of the Quakers at that time. George Fox is now thought of as the leader, but he and Naylor were equally important, and perhaps Naylor even more important, uh, during the uh, 17th century. Naylor fell from popularity after his arrest and uh, punishment for blasphemy when he went into Bristol with women going before him and men also with simulated palm branches hailing him with the words, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, an imita imitation of the triumphal entry of Christ. Now, this was simply an imitation of the royal entry of all medieval and early modern kings into cities. They were given the acclamation due to Christ. But when uh, Naylor did this, it was regarded as blasphemy. Kings were types of Christ. It was held they had a right to do this. Naylor uh, was said to have raised a woman named Dorcas from the dead, and uh, she was one of the women who accompanied Naylor on his entry into Bristol in 1656. There were a great many curious figures in that age who railed against uh, Cromwell and uh, paid the penalty for it by having then to face Charles II. Some of these were cultists who advocated a variety of things, including polygamy. Now, an interesting fact is the consequence of the defeat. The destruction of the Puritan Commonwealth. 
we do not realize how, after 1660, Europe, under the influence of the Enlightenment, began to be radically anti-Christian. It still maintained the forms. It used Christianity. Voltaire was all for maintaining the church as a means of keeping the servant classes under control. He would not allow his friends to discuss their atheism in front of his servants. Well, with this temper, the churches were censored. The Magnificat of Mary was by and large eliminated from the liturgies of Europe because the Magnificat has such a line as uh, that Christ will put down the mighty from their seats and exalt those that are of low degree. This was regarded as conducive to revolution, and therefore the church was not permitted to use it. Moreover, the kind of thing began to develop which became apparent immediately with the restoration with Charles II's coming to the throne in 1660. The sacrament would be administered to the gentlemen of the parish on one Sunday and to all others the week after. It was not fitting for gentlemen and ordinary people to partake of the same at the same time or of the same cup and bread. This is how the faith was turned into a mockery. Now on to something else, a book of a few years back, Essays on Christianity and Political Philosophy by George W. Carey and the Jesuit scholar James V. Schall, S-C-H-A-L-L, co-editors, published in 1984 by the University Press of America. These are papers presented at a conference on Christianity and political philosophy held at Georgetown University in 1980. The book is somewhat uneven, but there are some superb essays in it. One of them, of particular uh, caliber, is by Thomas Molnar, who almost always writes with superb insight. And his is titled, The Medieval Beginnings of Political Secularization. I was particularly interested in this because just recently I uh, dealt with this, how in the Middle Ages, as the battle between church and state developed, there was an overkill on the part of the church. Even as the state stripped the church of powers and turned the church into a puppet, usually, the church, in its doctrinal positions, undercut 
the religious foundations of the state. It made it possible for the state to consider itself as purely secular. So, uh, the original pre-Christian unregenerated man was restored as the political man, and Christianity was made otherworldly. It was reduced to uh, something that had little to do with this world. The church became a mystical body, pure and simple, with no voice in things political or material. This meant that it became possible uh, to create the modern humanistic society. Much of this came to a focus in Occam, as he points out, but we can add that it was present long before Occam, a Franciscan. It was present, of course, in Marsilius, John of Padua, and many others. The first great flaw in their thinking was the conception, he says, of the church as a purely mystical body which justifies its exclusion from the life of, the, uh, of politics. Then, second, he says, the great flaw in the thought of these men was that the supremacy of the people was basic, and they should elect the ruler and the pope and choose the laws by which they were to be governed. In other words, popular sovereignty and democracy. And as Molnar says, and I quote, Thus the conclusion reached by the radical medieval thinkers and their modern disciples is the elimination of the church as the spiritually and morally ordering principle in state and society. They expected instead that state and society will produce the ordering principle, a purely secular morality exemplified in the doctrines of Freemasonry and ethical culture society. Unquote. Then to the article by Alessandro's Classical and Christian Dimensions of American Political Thought are excellent. He calls attention to the fact that uh, the American system was the rebirth of classical and medieval constitutionalism. That the War of Independence was dominated by an intention to restore a true and just social and political order. That, uh, as Perry Miller had written earlier, and I quote, the biblical conception of a people standing in direct daily relation to God upon covenanted terms and therefore responsible for their moral conduct was a common possession of the Protestant people. Unquote. He goes on to call attention to some of the sentiments of the day, the challenges to the new thinking. James Otis, for example, in 1764 
well before the trouble began, declared, and I quote, to say Parliament is absolute and arbitrary is a contradiction. The Parliament cannot make two and two five. Omnipotency cannot do it. The supreme power in a state is to speak law only to give or make law, strictly speaking, belongs alone to God. Parliaments are in all cases to declare what is good, what is for the good of the whole, but it is not the declaration of Parliament that makes it so. There must in every instance be a higher authority, God. Should an act of Parliament be against any of his natural laws, which are immutably true, their declaration would be contrary to, to eternal truth, equity, and justice, and consequently void. All power is of God. Next, and only subordinate to him in the present state of the well-formed, beautifully constructed British monarchy, whose pillars are fixed in judgment, righteousness, and truth, is the King and Parliament. Unquote. Thus, we too often neglect this aspect of uh, our history because our contemporary writers are not interested in it. There's much more in this book. Tocqueville is quoted, it was religion that gave birth to the English colonies in America. One must never forget that. In the United States, religion is mingled with all the national customs and all those feelings which the word fatherland evokes. For that reason, it has peculiar power. Christianity itself is an established and irresistible fact which no one seeks to attack or to defend." Unquote. He cites the fact that Alan Heimert once remarked of Balin, his Harvard colleague, that he wrote almost as though the preachers did not exist and were not important in colonial America. This is a good book, although it is uneven in uh, the quality of its essays. Well, now on to some other things very quickly. The U.S. News and World Report for April 15, 1985 lists the time spent behind bars for certain offenses. Murder, 5.3 years. Rape, 2.8 years. Robbery, 2.1 year. Assault, 1.4 year. Burglary, 1.1 year. Drugs, 1.1 year. Auto theft, 1 year. So this is the median prison term served by first offenders. So it's easy to see why we do have problems. A good many years ago, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, I objected 
to the articles in the major Protestant magazine by a certain woman professor. I felt very definitely that there was something very, very wrong with her and totally warped about her, perspe her perspective. I called attention to it in writing to the associate editor whom I knew. He agreed with me, but as things developed, he had to leave rather than this woman writer. This professor has since... Uh, admitted to being a lesbian, she is still widely used in a variety of evangelical conferences. She is a part of the National Council of Churches Committee to correct the Bible and uh, eliminate its um, a male chauvinist bias, and now she has suggested that Jesus Christ may really have been a female. It is incredible to me that the church will tolerate people like that, and that evangelicals will continue to excuse people of that sort. We had an interesting thing happen in a nearby county this past month, the Phantom Forest Probe. <laughs> I'd never encountered Phantom Forests before, but uh, we have them. A six-man investigative team about a month ago visited uh, the Stanislaus National Forest because Forest Service employees had been falsifying records of reforestation work. So that apparently, according to the reports, uh, there had been large-scale replanting of burnt-over areas, of cleared areas, and so on, none of which had occurred. Phantom forests. Well, what do you expect when the federal government is doing it? The private lumber companies are always criticized for supposedly destroying timberlands. With them, it's a matter of business to reforest as ably and scientifically as possible when they cut over an area. Their future depends on it. Then this item from uh, Human Events for April 27, 1985 with regard to the Supreme Court and deciding that no public school teacher can be fired for advocating, soliciting, imposing, encouraging, or promoting public or private homosexual activity, the U.S. Supreme Court sank to a new low in its defense of immorality. To promote or solicit homosexuality in our public schools is just free speech, insists the court. If any teacher, uh, teachers impose homosexual ideas or conduct on our children, we as parents have an obligation to tell them how much we object to such vicious child abuse. We also have a serious obligation before God to protect our children from such teachers in whatever way is necessary. 
The statement comes from Dan Lyons in Lubbock, Texas, principal of Thomas More Prep School. <clears throat> then, uh, another item, I believe, uh, I called attention a while back to the fact that, uh, somewhere south of us, out of Jamestown, out in the country with practically no neighbors, the Sonora Mining Company had hoped by now to be producing gold from its 3,000-acre open-pit mining operation. However, the delay continues after, I think, 28 or 38 million dollars has been spent because they have uh, found another excuse on environmental grounds to delay their opening some kind of water permit. The uh, mining company has already spent a vast fortune trying to meet every regulation as ably as possible. Then the California farmer for April 6, 1985 calls attention to some facts about checkmating coyotes. Coyotes uh, have been wiping out the sheep ranchers. Every now and then, as of late, they find something to check it a bit. Uh, electric fencing is a ploy now being used at a cost of five to six hundred dollars a mile. But very quickly, the coyotes who are not stupid learn how to get around that. Such restrictions are placed upon the uh, trapping of coyotes that the ranchers are being wiped out and many have disappeared, are no longer in business. Then ah, <clears throat> uh, here it is, uh, Sonora Gold Mining Operation uh, has already spent 37 million and will have to spend at least another million if not more to satisfy the requirements. Well, on to another item which uh, one of you, Mrs. Uh, J.W. Wilkinson uh, sent in. Red China, of course, is butchering unborn children, limiting families to one child per couple, is a dictatorship, a thoroughly evil state. But it is now going out of its way to try to appease Western intellectuals, Western politicians, Western churchmen, all groups. And so a hand-delivered invitation from 
a Protestant leader, uh, was delivered to Billy Graham for a special symposium in Nanjing, July 14 to 27, 1985. And would you believe it? A number of Protestant leaders are planning to attend, although apparently Billy Graham could not go. So they are going to go there. The invitations are going out as though this is a tremendous opportunity. It's the sign of an open door. Great things are happening in Red China. Well, I see our time is almost up. I'd like to read very quickly a couple of poems. One of them by... Carl Wilson Baker from the last days of the last century. Let me grow lovely growing old. So many fine things to do, laces and ivory and gold and silks need not be new. And there is healing in old trees, old streets a glamour hold. Why may not I as well as these? Grow lovely, growing old. And then this one, which my Dorothy read to me last night at bedtime. This one is by Wilfred Wilson Gibson, who was born in 1880 and died some years ago. And the title is Marriage. Going my way of old, contented more or less. I dreamt not life could hold such happiness. I dreamt not that love's way could keep the golden height day after happy day, night after night. Well, thank you for listening, and God bless you all. encyclopedia, a dry-as-dust thing. It's a very human... Uh, it's a book aimed as much at Americans as it is at South Africans. Uh, Let me add a final word. This is a book that a uh, great many, many people did not want published. And uh, that story is quite an interesting one, which someday in the distant future might well be told.